Friends, we've moved into the final lap of our year-long study of Exodus, beginning the sixth and final movement of the narrative today. And this final movement is called the broken covenant. Because no matter how good God is to us, we still need to lean on God's grace, as we see in the story of the children of Israel. This is going to take us through Christ the King Sunday, and then we're going to move back into the New Testament for Advent and probably like stay in the New Testament for a hot minute um, because we've been spending a lot of time in the Old Testament this year. So you can look forward to that in the turn of the year. But through this year, my hope for us is that we've seen how God sets us free from sin and death, much in the same way as the Lord freed the children of Israel from bondage in Egypt. And this freedom is given with a purpose, to worship and serve the Lord alone. As we enter into this final movement of Exodus, I hope that you will have gained a taste of the character of this Lord, who we know in Jesus Christ. Our second reading today comes from the book of Exodus, chapter 2, verses 1 through 14. You can follow along if you'd like in your Red Pew Bibles on pages 78 and 79 of the Old Testament. This is Exodus, chapter 32, verses 1 through 14. Listen now for God's word to you. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down the mountain, the people gathered around Aaron And said to him, come, make gods for us who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the gold rings that are on your ears and on the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took the gold from them formed it into a mold and cast an image of a calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a festival to the Lord. They rose early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought sacrifices of well-being. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to revel. The Lord said to Moses, go down at once. Your people whom you, you brought up out of the land of Egypt have acted perversely. They've been quick to turn aside from the way I have commanded them. They've cast for themselves an image of a calf. And have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people, how stiff-necked they are. Now let me alone, so that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them. And of you, I will make a great nation. But Moses implored the Lord his God. And said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? No, turn from your fierce wrath. Change your mind. Do not bring disaster on your people. Remember Abraham. Isaac and Jacob 
your servants, how you swore to them by your own self, saying to them, I will multiply your descendants like the stars of heaven, and all this land that I've promised I will give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord changed his mind about the disaster that he planned to bring on his people. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Give us eyes to see, O Lord, the goodness and the beauty of your holy word. Help it to penetrate into our hearts, dividing bone and marrow, speaking to our souls, so that through it we may give you glory. In the name of your word made flesh, our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. It's been about the last 15 to 20 years that Hollywood has invested just billions and trillions of dollars into superhero movies. Maybe you've seen one or two of these. Maybe you've seen all of them. Um, Whether based on the Marvel superheroes or the DC superheroes, every year it seems there are more movies and TV shows to see than the year before. Some of these movies and TV shows involve superheroes teaming up. Others are much more origin stories, telling of the hero's character, the hero's powers. And if you want to get theological, the hero's call into being a superhero. Now, I consider myself something of a connoisseur of Marvel superhero movies. Not only do I watch them, but I watch breakdowns of them that show me the Easter eggs that I might have missed. I know how the origin story is supposed to go because I've seen a whole ton of them in the last 15, 20 years. Almost all of them follow a similar pattern. There's an inciting incident It leads to the superhero needing to use their powers. It leads to to, to a need in the world. After that, there's like a first confrontation that happens with the bad guy. Oftentimes, the superhero either like narrowly escapes or learns that they need to get better because they just barely edged out the bad guy somehow. And then often there's like a training montage. You've seen this with Rocky, I'm sure, and with other superhero movies, where the superhero begins to come to terms with who they are and learns to use their powers. And then finally, there's this final confrontation in which the superhero overcomes the bad guy and the world is saved up until the next time. So there's inciting incident, first confrontation, training montage, final confrontation. There won't be a test, but I'll be coming back to these through the sermon. Because not only can you see this structure in almost every superhero origin story, you can also see it in Israel's story in Exodus. There's this inciting incident. There's the new Pharaoh that comes into town and begins to put the people even more in bondage and, and is brutal to the people. The first confrontation is the plagues and then Pharaoh sending the Israelites away This blends kind of into like an act two confrontation at the Red Sea where the Israelites narrowly escape as well. And the training montage, all of these laws, this time in the wilderness that they've learned how to honor their God, uh, all the rules about the tabernacle, et cetera, et cetera. After all, the Israelites' superhero is that, excuse me, superpower is that they belong to God. So they need to learn how to utilize this. And then the final confrontation 
would be the Israelites rejecting the life of Egypt, rejecting the ways of Pharaoh and then worshiping and serving God fully and completely. That's what we begin Exodus 32 expecting. Those of you who are careful readers of the book of Exodus will know that this training montage from Exodus 25 to 31 has like gone deep and very detailed. And so the next step clearly is going to be doing away with evil, doing away with the works of sin forever. But that's not what happens. We've seen this story before, though. We know that you know, this is how stories go. America won the Revolutionary War, right? And then is going to spread democracy around the globe. Notre Dame has struggled early. And, and, and let me tell you, I wrote this before last night. So great was my faith. Notre Dame has struggled early, but has turned around on the back of their defense. It's taken out USC. We're going to win the national championship. That's how the story goes. From my mouth to God's ears, right? <laughs> but in Exodus 32, instead of the triumph we're expecting, it's an unmitigated failure. Aaron, who was supposed to be in charge while Moses was up talking to God, Aaron responds to the will and desire of the people, gathering up the gold Israel plundered from the Egyptians on their way out, melts it down and creates it's a graven image. Instead of an ark with cherubim as the seat for their God, an ark detailed and designed personally by their Lord, the children of Israel dashed together a golden calf. Instead of constructing a tabernacle, dedicating it with intentionality and love, the children of Israel, well, they do the very same thing that Adam and Eve did in the first sin. They see something they want, they reach out, and they grab it, whatever the consequences may be. They take hold of something that looks good in their own eyes instead of receiving what God has declared good. And if you're getting some whiplash in this chapter, it makes sense. This is not what we have come to expect in the narrative of Exodus. We've just finished several chapters about the glory of the tabernacle. And now we're confronted with the ugliness of the people's rebellion. It's as if scripture knows that at the center of the human heart, there's this tension between worship and rebellion. In the words of Martin Luther, we are at the same time righteous and sinful. This tendency toward rebellion and sin, it's been hardwired into the human psyche since our initial rebellion in Eden. And despite being freed from slavery and bondage in Egypt, the children of Israel cannot fully let the ways of Egypt go. They, the pharaohs let them go, but they are looking to serve a pharaoh who is not kind and generous as their God is. But this passage doesn't end there. Yes, this is bad, right? This is not the greatest of situations. Just as taking the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil was the original sin in the garden, this is Israel's original sin. Yes, the people should know better, especially since many of them literally ate with Yahweh. But despite this failure, there's good news in this passage. This good news is that even in our rebellion, 
God is gracious. I want to take a minute and look at precisely how the Israelites rebel, because I think that it's going to be instructive for us. Uh, On the one hand, they seem to be sort of skirting the right side of the law. We talk about the golden calf as shorthand for idolatry, but the truth is that none of the Israelites believed that they were worshiping the golden calf itself. This was a representation, much like many nations had, of the mount of their God. The idea is that, you know, you're not worshiping the calf, but you're worshiping the Lord that would ride on the calf in glory. Uh, This is a common practice practice in the ancient Near East. Just as the Ark of the Covenant was not God itself, but simply a footstool or a seat for God, the golden calf represented a God who would sit astride it. That's how Aaron could, without any cognitive dissonance whatsoever, point to the calf and say, hey, look, it's Yahweh. It's your Lord. It's not that Aaron is foolish. It's that Aaron is trying to direct the Israelites' attention to God. But This is not what God commanded. None of it was how God self-revealed to the children of Israel. It's sort of like thinking, hey, everybody who is like my spouse likes chocolate. Therefore, I will get my spouse chocolate refusing to believe your spouse when your spouse says, hey, I'm allergic to chocolate. It's like you might know a general truth about how gods tend to reveal, but the way your God reveals should trump that general truth. There's a steadfast refusal on the part of the children of Israel to learn about this Lord that they were hastening to worship, which suggests that their worship isn't about the God they're worshiping. Their worship is about themselves and feeling better about who they are. And how frequently do we do the same thing? Worship should feed us, absolutely. Don't hear me wrong. God wants to meet us in worship, and that will be a solve for our souls. But when we're coming to worship with ourselves as the main characters in the story, we're doing it wrong. There's a way that we tend to operate that takes our own needs and and, and desires and baptizes them, saying these are God's needs and desires. This is what the children of Israelites, excuse me, the children of Israel do here. And we've seen this before. We can see it in in world history, maybe a little more clearly than we can see it in our own lives. There's the big examples, like when the German Nazis justified their hatred of Jews by blaming them for the death of Christ. Or going back further, when the Christian crusaders killed tens of thousands in an attempt to retake the Holy Land. But it can be so hard, I think, to turn the focus inward because my rebellion, our rebellion, is probably not as obvious. Maybe I'm focusing on what I can get out of worship instead of what I can offer to the God I'm worshiping. Or maybe I baptize my own political preferences, saying that God is for me and against my political enemies. There are so many ways that we, as people containing a heart that holds intention, a desire to worship and a desire to sin, there are so many ways that we can baptize our own desires and call them gods. We are experts at leveraging God for our own ends, just as Aaron does here with the golden calf, announcing a festival to Yahweh. 
because this is not what Yahweh commanded. We are so creative in the ways that we rebel. And there's a reason, I think, that this passage is so centrally located in the story of the children of Israel. It says something uncomfortably true about our character. And just as the children of Israel need to hear this uncomfortable truth that we've made common cause with sin and death despite God delivering us from them, we need to be reminded of this as well. Not God wagging the finger and shaming us and telling us you're good for nothing, but we need to know this because we need to be honest with ourselves if we're going to accurately diagnose and look for a repair for our condition. And we also need to be reminded that even in our rebellion, we serve a gracious God. Because the story of Scripture does follow a similar script to a Hollywood superhero movie, but the hero is not Moses. The hero is not the children of Israel. It's not any of the heroes of the faith. The hero, of course, is, is Jesus. The inciting incident in this superhero story is the entrance of sin into the world, our need for a redeemer. The first confrontations are all the times that God's people are given a choice to choose righteousness or sin. And sometimes we make the right choice, other times we don't. The training montage are all the prophets that tell of the righteous one who is coming, the suffering servant of Isaiah, the son of man, as is told in Daniel, coming on the clouds with fire. And the final confrontation is Jesus triumphing over all the powers of evil in his death and resurrection. It's a death and resurrection that shows us the graciousness of God in our rebellion. God, the superhero in this story, did not abandon us to bondage in Egypt. God did not abandon us to all those golden calves we worship as if they were our Lord. God delivered us then and delivers us now, doing for us what we would be unable to do for ourselves. And then we're given a job in the wake of this. I wonder if you noticed this in the text. God turns from this wrathful destruction because Moses makes a petition. To God. God tells Moses, leave me alone. And Moses refuses. Moses reminds God of who God is, of God's character, of God's past actions on behalf of the people. Moses mediates between God and Israel, just as Jesus Christ mediates between God and the world God loves. And we can keep going. I mean, we are called as a church the body of Christ. We are called ambassadors between heaven and earth. We have a job, just like Moses. In weeks like this week, where we see chaos in the world, in our nation, when it seems like violence and sin are reigning supreme, even when the temptation is to ask God to call down fire upon the enemies of the kingdom of heaven, what our role is, what our task is, is to remind God of the covenant love at the center of God's character. Our role is not to leave God alone, but to continue to go to God in prayer, to say, God, remember your people 
in the midst of the devastation in Gaza. Remember your people in Afghanistan who've suffered through earthquakes. Remember your people in this nation as we deal with chaos among our elected representatives. Wherever you find yourself, you can ask God to remember you and the world that God loves. This is when we can speak the very words that Jesus spoke on the cross, saying, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. We too can pray this prayer, asking for God to remember the covenant, remember the mighty acts of grace. And as we remember our rebellion, and as we remember God's grace, let us also remember the role we have to prompt God's goodness and mercy to the world. May we remember God's love, the depth of God's love for the world. May we remind one another of God's love. May we also remind God, begging God to be gracious and merciful to the world, even when we think that the actions that the world is taking deserve God's wrathful justice. This is our role as members of Christ's body, because we serve a God who loves and who is gracious. May it be so. Amen.